Welcome back to I Came With Fire podcast, everybody. Tonight, we are here with Vince Vargas. I'm going to discuss uh, his his new book that comes out on the 14th of November, Borderline, and some uh, other things, We whatever we end up talking about. There hey, it is. Oh, we got it, too. We actually have the advanced reader. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. We have the advanced reader copy. He's got the real one there. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I just saw that uh, you, you put out the ability to get a signed copy of it, too. That's pretty cool. Yeah, they sent us these, uh, you know, these little stickers to put on it. But we had a partner with mm-hmm. a, we had a partner with an actual book company who was going to purchase the books uh, beforehand and then stick them on there. And so, um, just driving traffic to them because it's the only place you'll get signed ones at the moment. Okay. Some people, some people are setting up some like, um, you know, s- s- book signing like meet and greets. But um, yeah, you you can't get a signed one unless you run into me personally or you buy them there. Got you. Ooh. Yeah, we put the link up on our page earlier today. So anybody listening, if you want one, um, by the time this comes out, you'll still have time to pre-order. So please, please pre-order. So, um, but yeah, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I've checked out some of the other stuff that you have done. With, like I listened to your episode with Jocko. That's awesome. I saw the picture you guys put up and in the comments said, there's got to be five miles of chin in that picture. And uh, <laughs> I, I died when I saw that. It cracked me up. Yeah, man. It's funny. I have a son with like the same chin and uh, yeah, I feel bad for him because I give him all the chin jokes that they ever gave me. <laughs> Prep, prepping him for later. That's good. Yeah. That's what a dad's like supposed the, to do. Perfect. Like the crimson chin from Fairly Odd Parents or something. Oh, you get that. Joke? Right. Yeah. Tons of <laughs> this goes on. Uh, all kinds of Jay, stuff. Jay yeah, oh, yeah. Can, it, can it take yeah. a hit? Is it like durable? Is it strong? Yeah, I bet it can, man. I mean, I've never been knocked out in a boxing match, so I feel pretty good. There we good go. There we yeah. go. That's good stuff. See? Hell yeah. So let's jump in, man. Where where were you born? What was it like where you grew up? Yeah, uh, I was born backstory. In, yeah, yeah, I was born in the San Fernando Valley in, in Los Angeles, California. Um, okay. Born in Northridge at the Northridge Hospital at Kaiser. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what room? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. What time? Yeah. um you know i grew up in the in the you know born 81 but like was raised in the 90s early 90s where gangs were were pretty prevalent in la and you know i was very fortunate to have a father who who did his little stint in gangs and then then uh kind of he got in trouble and it was either go to the military or go to to jail and uh you know he chose the military and it kind of changed his path and he did everything he could to keep me off that same path because by the time I was younger, it just turned into gangs was different. It turned into gang banging, right? A lot of people getting shot right. and killed. And so uh, he put me in sports pretty heavily. And so I played sports since I was very young. I played baseball since I was four. And uh, awesome. I was just very committed to sports my whole life then. And I think that was the fortunate thing. It kept me away from a lot of the, the trouble that some of my buddies I grew up with got into. So that's really my upbringing. That seems to be the thing. Sports, sports are gangs. And I talk to a lot of people of their grew up like inner city, stuff like that. And um, I'll never knock anybody that grew up playing sports. You know, I did. And it's something that I hear a lot of people kind of put down growing. Oh, you just played sports. You got a scholarship playing sports. Whatever. It's like you have no idea how often that keeps kids occupied and off the streets. Mm-hmm. So sports, yeah, is a, sports is a W all day. Yeah. And it's more than that, too. Right. Like how much did you learn from sports? I learned how to win and I learned how to lose. You know, I learned right. physical fitness. I learned how to be a leader. I, I learned mm-hmm. 
you, you learn how to be a team player, camaraderie. Like mm-hmm. yeah, the right. reason the military felt so comfortable is because all those years in a clubhouse with with baseball players and, and my my brothers and, and and knowing how to be a part of a team, knowing how to blend in, knowing how to you know find, know what you're good at and that's what you bring to the team, right? Your talent. And so mm-hmm. uh, I think it's such an important skill set to to give your kids some kind of you know some kind of competitive nature as a kid. I think mm-hmm. life is competitive. You know, I think yeah. you're, when you're Absolutely. in the in the field of looking for a woman, it's competitive. You're competing against other men. If you're, oh, you know, sure. it's like life is nothing but to me. It's like a competition, not so much a competition against other people, but uh, sometimes it's a competition between ourselves. You know, within ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, I think sports. I, I give my kids sports that they all have to play some kind of a sport in our household. I don't care what it is, but mm-hmm. there's some kind of activity that's an extracurricular. And uh, we've watched them all go through it, you know, struggle and and hardship. And and it's been, it's kind of fun to watch at the same time, be there to kind of pick them up when they're down. Heck yeah. Yeah. Now you're speaking to some real existential truths there, man, like uh, growing up or coming up as human beings. That's, that's what it is. Survival of the fittest. You know, if uh, we got here because of all our ancestors that are willing to pick up a spear and fight a saber tooth tiger and the ones (laughs) that didn't aren't aren't here, you know what I mean? So in that inner struggle, like you said, like, Exactly. Yeah. Your poop on the ground afterwards. And, uh, I mean, <laughs> it teaches you to deal with those inner struggles. Absolutely. Like you said, and it's, uh, it's definitely a great way. I actually had this conversation with a really good senior NCO. Um, you know, him and I are pretty good friends that we're talking about. You can tell the kid, the difference between the kids that played sports before they came into the military and the kids that didn't, or like the kids that had jobs, you know, before they came in. Mm-hmm. And um, that's exactly what he was getting at is the ones that don't understand how to be a team player. And that means like being a leader and a follower, because those are two different things and they both require a different line of effort. Yeah. And um, it's, it's so true. You know, it's a, it must, to me, it says like your, your dad and your mom probably had a lot of that in them and, and kind of raised you that way. Yeah. You know, I don't, I'll say like, in all honesty, my parents weren't much of like mentors, but they were, they were examples of what, you know, they expected us to be. And meaning I didn't have these long, deep talks with my father that I try and have with my sons. Now, uh, he was just a man of what he did proved himself to be exactly the man of his word. He was a hard worker. Mm -hmm. He was a, he was a a family man. Everything he did was for us. And, uh, everyone who ever met him was like, your dad's a good man. And so I think like I said, he just lived by example and it was enough to influence me to try and be the same, if not try and be, try and try and make him proud in the same effort. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I feel you there because a lot of the deep conversations I've had with my father have definitely come as I've been an adult and after I've had children. And, you know, it's it's no fault of his. Like He was deployed a lot. Um, you know, GY had him going all the time or he was work late. He's an Intel guy. And um, so, you know, just he wanted to. I know he did. And we did a lot together, played a lot of sports. I was always in sports. But um, those deep conversations definitely have had since, uh, you know, I've, I've become an adult. I know that Zach, Zach actually is, is pretty, pretty damn close with his dad. So I am. Yeah. I'm very close yeah. to my dad. He's a, he wasn't much of a talker either when I uh, growing up, but I don't know. I wasn't much of a talker either, even though I'm on a podcast, which doesn't make any sense, but yeah, <laughs> you're there for the aesthetics. Yeah. I'm just here to look yeah. pretty for the camera. Um, I appreciate it. Yeah. The, uh, my, my dad's like my best friend. Uh, I could go to him about anything. I would, him and I would just have like adult conversations from the time I can remember as a kid. He never really, I guess, like babied anything, but I think it's important to, to have a dad. Um, and dads yeah, are very yeah. important to culture. And I, I think a lot of some of the issues with current generation coming up and stuff is the lack of a, 
like an actual strong father figure or a like yep. a founding oh, father no type in their in their family. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm very Absolutely. lucky, very lucky to have a dad who grounded me. You know, kind of made my craziness not get too out there because I know what's inside my my brain. And if there wasn't if there wasn't a dad to discipline me and to keep me on the right path. I'd be crazy. I just know, I know I'd be crazy. <laughs> yeah. No, I get it, man. Yeah, I, I agree. I think um, dads are pretty important in a household. It's kind of that balance. You know, if you have a mother and a father, you're very fortunate because the balance of the nurture and the, and the disciplinary, you know, it's kind of yeah. in our households like that. You know, the kids have the opportunity to have both sides of it. But me as a father, I'm definitely, I'm learning and growing as a dad to try and be really good for them as well as, society wants me to kind of not be as masculine, mm -hmm. you know, and I yeah. fight with, you know, I fight with that as in like, I don't want to be the guy that says he knows it all, but uh, I want to raise my son to be a tough man who, who is willing to defend people who are weaker than him uh, in the idea ideology of just kind of who we are as Americans. Right. But if you're trained, then you should use it for good and not evil. And, mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, you tell that to someone else, they'd be like, Oh, you're a monster. You're raising your kids to know how to fight. It's like, <laughs> Yeah, but my no, kids I'm teaching them how to defend, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah defend exactly and protect, protect. And yeah. there's not a lot of people who are willing to engage. And my kids, unfortunately or fortunately, however you want to see it, um, were raised under my roof. Who I raised them to learn how to defend themselves at a very young age. That's good. What you said makes me think of the Jordan Peterson line where he says, "You should become a monster and then learn how to control it." And yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly the truth. And and I um, think that's what a lot of highly trained that's exactly what they are right like you know when you, you right. need to that's true yeah um you know you're talking about you know raising raising strong men zach and i think just you know in general being a, a good parent to both you know your sons and daughters is important but i think there's been over the past couple decades a coddling of american youth primarily american male youth and I think it's pretty prevalent. You can see it a lot online. If you spend a lot of time online, you see you see kind of the uh, effeminate male has made his uh, presence known. Um, well, I, I, think I, think I think coddling's a is a cop out word. It, 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 in my mind, they're they're mm -hmm. purposely holding men back. Yeah, they're not they're not coddling they're, them. They're not like, oh, let me help you. They're purposely making them think they need more help and then holding them back. Mm -hmm. I think there's both, but yeah. Yeah, I think um, it's funny. I think as society like learns all these studies and they're like, well, they're trying to do, I guess they're trying to do right by men who, 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 who have emotions and they, what are all that stuff, right? But sometimes it seems like they've over-calculated over it on the scientific side of things. Yeah. And so then people, you know, people are trying to, they want to be better parents, but they, they're not realizing the, the ripple effect of that. And, you know, I accidentally, so just to examine, I accidentally raised really tough girls because, mm -hmm. you know, I, I taught them how to wrestle at a very young age and I mm -hmm. made them read books where women were the lead character in the books to show them that women can't do anything they fucking want. Right. And that's awesome. awesome. And I have daughters who are very tough and, and tough minded, but in the same aspect, I'm hoping my sons are too. And so when I, when I think about who my daughters date, I'm like, I, I imagine they want someone who can defend them, even though they can defend mm -hmm. themselves. And I imagine, you know, they don't want to be the one to change their tire if they need to, that they hopefully their man will, you know what I mean? And so, right. so it's this really kind of interesting time where, yes, people are like wanting men to be, be softer, not so this toxic masculinity conversation is just kind of gets old. But in the end of the day, yes. like, 
everybody is going to need someone to defend them. And, you know, as much as women are women, men are men, I think, you know, I, in my household, choose to raise my kids in the way to my son will protect his sisters and he will die on his shield if he has to, to do that, right, you know, yes. and, and if he can't do it, then my daughters will at least go down swinging too. You know what I mean? And so, and instead of influencing the world on anyone's opinion, like just keep it within your own fucking household and raise your family the way you want to raise your own fucking family. But don't try mm-hmm. and fucking, don't try and judge me for how I do mine. Oh, I yeah. like what you said Absolutely. about how you, uh, you know, you raised strong daughters. So, uh, Brandon has kids currently. Uh, he's got a son and a daughter. Obviously, you have kids. You just talked about them. But the uh, uh, my wife is pregnant now, and this is gonna be our first kid. So we're about to have our fir- like my first daughter. You know, she's at the end of January, and I've always thought of how would I want to raise her, all this type of stuff. And I, I think I want to kind of go down the same line you just kind of discussed. I want to make sure that my daughter is strong and independent, and can do things on her own, and have that empowerment kind of with her and stuff. But then I also want to show her that like, like the love that I give her and like, I want her to see how I treat her mom, you know, like right. very nurtured, very cared for type of stuff. So that when she is getting older and she starts looking for her, you know, spouse or mate or whatever, she's looking for someone because they do say they usually daughters look for their dad and sons look for their mom, you know, cause they're looking for those type of things. Yeah. Um, and I hope that I can be a strong nurturing father that would emulate well with my daughter so she can find the right one. Yeah. So. Well, it's interesting. It's kind of like, so if there's a, if there's like a dial, you know, and you, in, you know, back in the day, my dad didn't teach my daughters, my, uh, my sisters to be tough. He just taught them to be like the women of the household, you know? And so <laughs> you know, the, the dial was pushed more towards like traditional kind of women, you know, cook and clean. And in my yeah. household, I, I turned the dial like, well, no, you should defend yourself too. So the problem is when you turn the dial that far, well, then then they go, well, I don't need a man. And you're like, wait, wait, wait. wait. <laughs> <Right>. yeah. <laughs> Let's find that balance. Yeah, yeah. like finding the balance and, like, and letting them know, like, look, just because you can't defend yourself and you, you, you are independent doesn't mean you need to be, right? You should be a, a yeah. kind of like a – you should find the balance in your relationship where you guys can you know, find homeostasis in your own. But knowing that in the, in the worst case type of event in life, alone you can still be successful you know yeah. but i'm always a fearful yeah. of like them pushing too far the dial and they're like you know what fuck man i don't need them and like no no that's not what right. i'm like right i want to like, kids i mean i want yeah, you yeah, to yeah, yeah. Yeah. i want to paint for your wedding one day yeah right no, no dating so until after you're married no. <laughs> <laughs> exactly you know and it's so funny you said you know you don't need a man and you shouldn't be in that spot it's so true that's like that's the key to a successful relationship is being to be being able to be okay with yourself but wanting that person in your life exactly yeah, i mean you both be that yeah. yeah exactly exactly and uh it's kind of cool uh you're talking earlier about um you know listening to people talk about your your dad and uh I've actually we've had a few people on our our podcast who we've talked to who work with my dad and uh, I've learned a lot about him from some of those people too, and uh, it's kind of interesting hearing somebody else's like a peer peer's uh, perspective of, of your father because it it can definitely mold how you look at that that like at your your dad and uh, it's definitely done that for me so I think that's kind of cool. Yeah, I've been I follow my dad around in the boxing world and and I go to his fights as he does his thing and I mean it's like everyone comes up to me and goes, your dad's like great guy. And you're like, Oh, it's cool to hear, right. man. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. cool. And I hope my kids get the same message from my friends about me. You know what I mean? But it's one of those things. Uh, 
that's kind of where, you know, my dad didn't have to say much, just his, his presence and his actions kind of proven to me what kind of, kind of man he is. Definitely. So tell me about like, why, why it was you decided to join the army and why you decided to, to go the route of uh, the ranger? Yeah. Um, you know, at the time I had a full ride scholarship to a Kentucky, to a school in Kentucky called Brush University. Um, and mm-hmm. you know, I was trying to continue my career as a baseball player and hopefully go as a professional, you know, that was the dream. Okay. Um, but during that time, a lot of things happened in my life. I was getting in trouble a lot with drinking and fighting. I was getting, mm-hmm. and, and I had a daughter who, uh, you know, I got a girl pregnant back home and, and I'm struggling my grades. And so it felt like kind of my world was kind of coming apart and, this was in 2000. It was like late 2002. No, it was early 2003 where I found out I was academically ineligible and I lost my full ride scholarship. And I'm sitting in a small town in Kentucky mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, and I'm trying to figure out, well, what the fuck's next? I'm getting kicked out that of my college. Like culture shock. Yeah. Yeah. I got kicked out of my college. Um, I had to go find a little apartment. I didn't want to go back home yet because that's that's failure. Right. How do I tell my parents mm-hmm. I just fucked up? Uh, yeah. I had a daughter back there with a, with a girl at the time I didn't want anything to do with. And so like, there was nothing going good in my life. And so I got a job at a Texas roadhouse and I was just trying to figure mm-hmm. it out. I gave myself like six months to try and like, what's next. I tried to go to a police academy, but I would have had to play out of state tuition. I had, didn't have the money to do it. And so all the things that I was trying to do, it just proved to be too difficult or I just didn't understand it or, or I just didn't want to give it the full effort. And uh, I was at a bar. I, I got off shift at, T- at Texas Roadhouse, and I walked over to the Buffalo Wild Wings. And it's one of those cities where everyone knows who you are. So as soon as I walk in, the bartender, his name is Jerry. He goes, hey, dude, the, the usual? I'm like, yeah, bro, the usual. And at the time, I had a little <laughs> spot. Yeah, you know what I mean? I had a spot at the bar. Um, me and my boy, we sat down, and we're playing this trivia game and watching sports. And on one of the TVs, I saw uh, like a news report, uh, like CNN, CNN or Fox or something, where uh, the Marine was putting the, the American flag over the statue of Saddam Hussein's head. Remember that? that okay. whole thing? Yes. And we've all seen it, right? Yeah, and they pulled the statue down. Mm-hmm. And so oh, yeah. the Marine who put the flag over the head of the statue, his his family was in studio and they were interviewing them. And, you know, they're, they're, they're proud of him. And they had tears in their eyes. And they were just talking so high about their son and how, how proud they were. And, you know, in that moment, I felt... I don't know if I've ever given my family a moment like that. I don't think I've ever made them that proud. And what I'm doing now, sitting at a bar, lost a full ride, have a baby on the way, and shit, got nothing to show for it. I know for a fact they're not fucking proud of me now too. You know, And so I was going to have to face reality and, and, and start fixing a lot of this, this shit that I just put myself into. And that night when I saw that, I realized like, what, what can fulfill all those issues? What can kind of make my family proud, what can put money in my pocket so I can support my daughter and, and what could, what could be the next mission for me? You know what I mean? And so I, I was, I went to the recruiter the next day and signed up and I asked for what's the hardest thing you have, because I wanted to face a challenge. I wanted to see what was out there. And so uh, they said the range of contract is what I could get based on my GT scores on my, my ASVAB. Awesome. So I went, I went for the option 40 contract and, uh, there you have it. That was it. <laughs> so, uh, so I'm Air Force. I'm not. I'm not as cool as you uh, in the Army. <laughs> You're smarter uh, than. Yeah, sure. We'll go. The Army is an acronym. Army is an acronym. What it stands it stands for Air Force rejected me yesterday. So, just uh, <laughs> okay. I thought it was aren't ready to be a Marine yet. Is what yeah, I've heard. Somebody too. said that they one both too. Work. Yeah. I've heard okay. 
Either way, chair, chair force, sure, yeah. But uh, Jed's got a chair. It does. That's true. <laughs> um, you know, what is uh, Army basic training? You guys go to a couple different different places. I know that, like, if you're because you were whatever based on your MLS, do you go with with others who are going down that like Ranger pipeline, or are you just like in in there with you know guys that are going to be like Motor T and like all this other stuff? No, so if you're infantry, you go to basic training at Fort Benning. And so okay. So if you're infantry, you go to basic training at Fort Benning, hands down. If you're active duty infantry, that's what you do. And so it's okay. it's the home of the infantry, right? And mm-hmm. so if you have a Ranger contract as well, you'll be there too. With If you're infantry, like 11 Bravo, with a Ranger contract, you're going to be at Fort Benning. Now, we had in my platoon, if there were 60 kids in the platoon, it was probably 45 kids in the platoon. Uh, we had about 30 Ranger contracts. Okay. So I didn't know that either. I just thought, I was like, oh, cool, I got a Ranger contract, and I thought I was going to be the only one. I actually learned a lot about what I was going to get myself into from the guys that were in basic training with me. They like Some of those guys were wealthy. They knew exactly what was happening. I had, I had no fucking clue. And I was like, so so – I said, what's this rip thing? You know, and they're like, oh, it's a selection. I'm like, what the fuck do you mean a selection? Like, well, they're going to kick our fucking ass. I'm like, oh, fuck. And so <laughs> I said, like, oh, I guess I, yeah, do I even want this? Like, I don't even know if I fucking want this thing. <laughs> yeah, and so, yeah. And then you find out, you know, Rangers, the perks of it is like you're surrounded by men who other men who want to be be in that world. Right. So the top mm-hmm. top of the echelon of the dudes who are just ready to go to war. I'm like, OK, that that makes me feel a little bit better that everyone's going to be you know, wanting to do what I do, right? The other side of it was like shorter deployments. And so I kept thinking like that'd be better for my kid, that I could be in her life a little bit more. And so really that drove me to like, okay, let's just do this Ranger thing. It gives me more time to be with the family, which proved to be a fucking lie. <laughs> right. Right. It always is. Yeah. But yeah, so you went to basic training and every 11, everyone was 11 Bravo. It was just some had Ranger contracts, some didn't. Some had uh, 18 contracts special forces contracts there was a couple that guys ahead right. and there were some that were just like 11 charlie and regular infantry several right, of my right. dudes went to vincenza uh and, okay. and served out there so it's funny you say you learned a lot about it when you're at basic training uh when i was at basic so my dad was active duty and so like when i went to the recruiter the only thought i had in my head was active duty and i get to to basic and almost like two-thirds of my my flight we call them flights are guard or reserve and I started talking to them and they're like, oh, did you have a bonus in your contract? And I was like, well, I do if I finish tech school. And they're like, oh, shit, I, I'm getting 30 grand just for finishing basic. And I'm like, what? You know, and and they're like, I'm like what How? Like, what fucking job are you doing? And they're like, oh, like, I'm going to go back to my guard unit and I'm going to be a load master. And I just, you know, it's because my guard unit and I had no idea, like all these guys that were going guard or reserve got these crazy, like incentivized contracts just for, just for joining. They were going to, you know, they'd already been like working at their, you know, their guard base and all this shit. And yeah, I was but like, their, their bonuses though cover because they're not paid full time. Like I was still though, like I had no idea, yeah. you know, I was I, a recruiter and, uh, I, the our, our guard counter and reserve counterpart. If you actually like sit down and you take like a guard or reservist who's going to do, because they have to sign a six year no matter what. So they sign like a six year, they get their like thirty k, forty k bonus. If you take their part time work the the whole time, and then their bonus, they make like one third the amount that an active duty member makes in the same time. Mm-hmm. So like they gotcha. still make significantly less, and then their health care isn't like free like i know ours what it costs like what 20 or 30 bucks a month or something 
theirs is like two fifty a month, but they only get paid like three fifty a month, so they actually only get paid like a hundred bucks. So like it's not it's not all what it's chalked up to be. It's okay, just, Zach. <laughs> just saying. Right. All those people that got their thirty K. I know, exactly. Thank you, computer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> So, uh, what was it? Was it like for you finally, like making it way? Like, what what is Rip like? Obviously, I've never been through it, you know. And then finally getting to your first duty station. Yeah, I think Rip at the time was like a little bit more than two weeks, but not so much three weeks. And really, it's just a big suck fest, like a PT suck fest. It's like a PT test, yeah. and eventually there's a five mile run, and then there's like yeah. a long ass road march, and then there's a thing called Coal Range, which it's very famous. Coal Range is like is like where people show up and fucking quit. Like that's the place where you get the biggest dropout. Uh, And it happens to be where you do land navigation courses as well as like smoke sessions all night. You're just getting fucking dusted off all night. And then, you know, when you graduate from that or when you pass that, you pass by finishing another long ass fucking road march. And it's just, Mm -hmm. it's just a suck fest. You know, they don't feed you much. They don't let you sleep much. Uh, They kick your ass physically and, uh, you know, you, it's a, it's a test of intestinal fortitude. And, um, you know, I had no idea wh- whether I was going to be able to manage it or not. I, I've never been through anything fucking tough. Like, you know, baseball was, was easy and fucking football was mm-hmm. just hell weeks. And so, uh, yeah. when I got through it, I was kind of surprised. Like, Oh, that wasn't as bad as I thought. You know what I mean? It sucked, okay. but it wasn't, wasn't terrible. Um, it, you know, the worst was now I had to go to Ranger Battalion and Ranger Battalion as a, as a private, if you don't have a Ranger tab, it's fucking hell there. So that became the next like big hurdle. <laughs> I had to major earn your keep, huh? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Even though it's funny, I was kind of an older soldier. You know what I mean? There was a few of us that were 23, 24 and um, most of the young dudes coming there were 18 years old. And so mm-hmm. those 18 year old kids who've never done shit in their life are fucking dumbasses. You know, they're genuinely sure. like just green, bro. They don't know shit, but I'm yeah. over here. had a kid. I've done, you know, three years of college and, and, uh, you know, I've had some full-time, I've done some, some, I've done just lived a little. And so, uh, getting to Ranger Town, I didn't want to go through that fucking new guy phase, but you definitely have to get put through the ringer for a little while. Once mm-hmm. I got my first deployment, I started to earn a little bit of respect. Uh, but again, you, you really don't get treated good until you get your Ranger tab. So after my second deployment, um, I went to Ranger School, got my Ranger tab, then went to my, went to my third deployment. And eventually it was like, my time was up in my four years. I decided to to get out <laughs> what was uh what year was that first deployment what was that like for you uh 2004 was in afghanistan uh it was okay. it was interesting man i was um i didn't know what to expect i was kind of curious what it was going to be like you know i i seen black hawk down so i'm imagining the worst fucking case scenario right sure. but it was definitely a culture shock of showing up to Afghanistan and understanding that environment and the way we did missions back then was really kind of like walking into, to, you know, walking eight clicks to an objective and hitting, hitting a house. And and these people who haven't seen a chem light in their whole life and you crack one of those chem lights, they fucking feel like you just, you know, you just did magic, you know? And so it's, you know, the, the infantrymen doing war uh, is one side of me, you know, then the other side of just kind of like, observing it all and like being very empathetic to it and like what a fucking weird experience this was you know what i mean yeah yeah and then you know and so i was i was fortunate we didn't we didn't have a lot of action our first deployment or for my first deployment it was the first deployment after Toman was killed you know and so at Toman. yep so it was a lot of uh 
-hmm. there was a lot of interesting tension in the platoon as well as the company during that time. And so we got in there, we did our missions and we got out and, um, you know, I was told I was going to go to Ranger school, but I uh, then also was, they mentioned that we were, our next appointment was going to be Iraq. And so I opted to skip Ranger school and go to Iraq. And, um, that was my most eventful deployment. We had a ton of missions. We had a lot of contact, you know, we had a lot of, uh, purple hearts earned and, um, yeah, man, it was a, that was a hell of an experience. It was my, my favorite by far deployment that I'm, I'm super proud of as a platoon and what we did, the work we did out there. Um, we, we, you know, we had guys who get injured, but no one, we didn't lose anyone in that deployment, which is, which is very, very fortunate. Yeah. Um, and you know, I was excited to be a ranger. I was proud to be a part of this organization that has such a heavy, heavy history and to be able to, you know, kick indoors with some of the best dudes in the world. Um, after that deployment, uh, we went back and that's when I went to ranger school. And during that time in ranger school, um, the, the platoon deployed again to Iraq, but this time to Ramadi. Uh, mm-hmm. My deployment was in Mosul. And uh, so they, they went to Ramadi in 2006. And um, that's when we ended up losing two guys and I wasn't there. So um, that was, that was a big hit for me that psychologically, you know, and emotionally I lost two of the most influential dudes in my career. Um, I was fortunate. So to- oh, absolutely. And I mean, if you guys have followed me at all, you've probably seen the video I did with Matt and we talked about them. Mm-hmm. If you haven't seen it, it's out there somewhere, but um, I've heard you talk about it. Yeah. Sergeant Barraza and Sergeant Brim. Uh, Sergeant Barraza for me was someone I looked up to heavily, someone who I, wanted to emulate someone who, who I think is a better man than I will ever be. And I've always wished I could trade places with him, you know? And so, um, you know, after losing him, it really made me question whether I wanted to keep going or if I wanted to get out and try something different. And so after my, when going into my last deployment, I was really like, fuck, I don't want to, I don't think I want to do this anymore. And so, you know, we did all our missions and the whole time I'm like, I uh, hope this is the last one. I'm ready to go home. Because I know they were killed on one of the last missions of that deployment. So that's in my head. You know what right. I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I just got to get so, out of here. Yeah. And so I'm like, I, everyone is like, dude, if it could have happened to them, it fucked me up, you know? And so mm-hmm. when that last uh, last mission happened and we redeployed back home, I was like, all right, fuck this. I'm out, you know? And so I got off of active duty and decided to go into the reserves. Okay. But I safeguarded my own career field. I wanted to get established in, in the States. So I wanted to find a job that was non-deployable for a while. Okay. So it was going to be like, I didn't know what else to do recruiter or something, but I found a drill sergeant. Posi- uh, yeah. I found a drill sergeant Pretty position. Cool. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. And so I became a, an yeah. army, you know, reserve drill sergeant. And, uh, during the time of that, I, uh, you know, applied for a bunch of jobs and landed one as a prison guard. My first job okay. out of the, yeah. It's actually my second job. The first job I had was a sales for a company called Sintas. But I did it for oh, like yeah. a month. <laughs> yeah. What, what was that? Yeah, what'd you sell? Sintas. Sounds weird. Yes, it's called Sintas. It was Sintas. I don't okay. even know. Essentially okay. what they did was um I was like I was in the medical department, so I was I was selling uh medical supplies to corporations. Oh, okay. Essentially okay. like you know, like everyone has an ocean. Yeah, exactly. Shit like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. ADs and shit. And so right. I did, did okay. it for like 
did it for like 45 days and I was like, fuck this job. But right. it, it was the first job out of the shoot that I can get paid. Um, and I was applying for everything else after that. And I landed a job as a, as a corrections officer for a private prison. Okay. Gotcha. Earlier when you were talking about your, uh, your first deployment, you were talking about like the human side of you seeing the people and the way they live like that. Um, Zach and I actually met uh, deployed to Kenya and mm-hmm. we actually had a lot of communication with the locals outside of the camp we were at. And it's wild looking, you know, I had my daughter at the time. I didn't have my son yet. And I'm looking at these little girls and they're getting these, like we're bringing these like USO care packages out to them. They have these little barrettes and stuff like that. They can put in their hair. And these things probably cost somebody like two cents to make. And it was like really Christmas for these little girls, you know, and their huts are literally made of sticks and mud and there's black mambas and puff adders and shit all over the place. And there's Al-Shabaab down the road, you know, and it's like, to me, it was just like, it changed me a little bit just to, to feel, I already knew like how lucky I was to be an American, but to see that, like it, if there could have been, if there was a nail to drive home about it, like it was, that was really it for me. Is that kind of like the same experience that you're talking about, like seeing people in another country live? Yeah, man. You know, I don't know where it comes from, but I mean, even when I was a kid and we used to go to Mexico, you know, my mom would give me 20 bucks to go spend on something. And I see a little kid selling chiclets and I'd give him the whole 20 bucks for one fucking pack of chiclets because I just felt bad for the motherfucker. You know what I mean? Like right. I've always been very empathetic of my surroundings and people's, you know, situations. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always been very fortunate. You know, we didn't have the biggest house growing up. We, you know, we, we didn't have a lot of money, but at the same time, you know, when we did, you know, I was like, Oh, okay, cool. We're doing all right. But I always felt empathetic towards other people. And so in the military, I never expected I would feel that. Cause I was thought it was going to be just like such survival mode and just get through it. But there was moments where you're like, God damn, this is crazy as fuck. You know what I mean? And um, yeah, I've never let that go, you know, like we, when you get a chance to read the book, that's, that's probably why a lot of people, when they've read the book, they've been like, I didn't expect that side of you because I talk a lot about that in, that hasn't stopped. Meaning like Mm -hmm. the way I'm empathetic towards people and towards situations um, is why uh, I was kind of compelled to write the book because the same reason is very empathetic towards what's happening on the border on both sides of the argument from mm-hmm. illegal immigration as well as to the board really just working the game. Mm-hmm. So yeah. And it's the same being a prison guard, bro. I'm sitting there and there's some people that are, I don't fucking give two shits about in prison because they've done things that I find to be um, unforgivable, but there's some people right. in there. You're like, Holy fuck, bro. I could be on the other side of this motherfucker. Just like this dude. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and so, that's something I tell a lot of these, like the junior airmen coming up is like, you know, you think that you're better than somebody else you see getting in trouble right now. But like, I know you fuck around too. And the difference between you and them is that they got caught and you haven't yet. So, you know, let's, let's act with a little, little humility. You know what I mean? So, um, with fortunately Zach and I actually have read your book because we were sent the uh, advanced reader copies. So yeah, yeah. So that's, we can, we can talk to it for sure. And um, it's honestly, is a really, really good book. I told my dad, um, you know, that, that I was reading it. And um, when we were asked if we wanted to get the advanced reader copy and all that stuff a couple of months ago, I saw, you know, read the, 
I don't know what they call it, the little thing they send you about like the book and you. And I was like, oh, fuck yeah, I want to talk to this guy. Like, this sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah. And the, the border crisis obviously is something that a lot of people talk about. And I'm like you, I feel like I have a lot of empathy for other people. I grew up overseas. My dad was stationed in Japan, Germany, and England. I moved around all the time. I got to visit all these other countries, see how people live. And um, I think that that's helped me have a different perspective on like just us as, as Americans. And then obviously joining the military myself, I've definitely developed a different perspective. And um, but reading your book definitely more more so just helped me humanize like you guys as border patrol agents and. Um, you know, it's got to be incredibly frustrating because Border Patrol is a federal agency. And like, I just watched a video the other day of um, like some bulldozers pushing down fence line in Texas that the state of Texas put up, but the federal government is pushing them down. And I know that like the support from like, at least, you know, the current presidential regime and the other people like is, is pretty null and void. Um, so like, I, I feel like that's got to be just a mental beatdown for you guys, man. Yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting argument and discussion because like Texas is is so fascinating because right, border patrol is federal, but the state of Texas is state, and mm-hmm. so and so you have federal law going against state law, and they both have good intentions, mm-hmm. but both take different um, actions towards the illegal immigration. Uh, right. Texas, Texas is Texas. I live in Texas, right? Texas wants to secure their borders and they're willing to do whatever they have to to secure that border. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, as I love Texas, man. I, I will not hate on Texas at all. And I get it. But to understand, how to, yeah, to understand how to do this job as Border Patrol agents, we, we are taught to do this job uh, with, with the thought of the, the empathy behind illegal immigration. Like, I understand why people are coming across. I understand yeah. there's two parts of this. There's always two parts of the argument happening at every time. There's going to be illegal right. immigration, or immigration policy, and the other side is going to be homeland security. Right. So I had to somehow, in you know, the duality of that, I had to somehow enforce the security of our country and protect Americans. But I also have to understand, like, illegal immigration, uh, there's, there's, there's a foundation of that that is people being manipulated, people being trafficked, people being, you know, yeah. fooled into doing the, the illegal process because that's the path that that everyone has told them is the only way to go. Right. So the duality of that is challenging. And us as border patrol agents see things in, in a way where it's a humanitarian mission half the time. And, right. you know, I, I would much rather them do it the legal way, the safer way where they don't risk their life, where they don't, they don't risk being raped, murdered, abused. Uh, all those things that happen, you know, I, w- I would much rather them do it the legal way, but uh, that's not the situation we have. And so the situation we have is that we still have to be humans in how we apprehend them and how we how we safeguard human life. And right. when you start putting, you know, an abundance of razor wire to try and stop it, uh, it doesn't make sense when you do that and it starts to harm women and children who are just trying to come here and mm-hmm. have better life it, it, it just right. the opposite of that you have both sides of the argument that are saying yeah that's awesome and then the other side is like no it's not and and for me it's it's the hardest most complex argument we have currently in our society yeah. it is a constant dichotomy i gotta feel like for you guys because as as a patriot as somebody who served your country and then wanting to help people and seeing this every day has to just be like a constant state of confusion. And that's a question I wanted to ask you is how do we posture up 
and keep the border more secure, but at the same same time, still help that fleeing mother with children who's just trying to get a better life. Yeah, you know, the policy is currently in place. It's called, you know, it's USC, it's Title Eight, right? And, and it's 1325 if you enter it in the country illegally. Mm-hmm. Um, we will, what Border Patrol's job is, is we will process each individual what they tell us their situation is, okay. right? And then we have to do a little bit of an investigation, a very minor investigation of that that clause, right? right? Or what the, their claim but our job is not to determine whether their story is true or false. Our job is just to process the paperwork, hand them off to ICE, ICE houses them, and gets them to meet the immigration judge who determines their case. Okay. And so if you if you understand that foundation of where you start, like so if, if this, this grand scale of all immigration, if you just start with the first contact, us as Border Patrol agents – all our job is to, if you've attempted to cross illegally, our job is to try and stop you. And once we do stop you, we process you. And once we process you, we hand you off. And we process you based on what you determine your case is. So if they say, we're seeking asylum, we're like, okay. And they say, we're, we're, we're here just trying to work. Okay, okay. We process it, whatever the policy is in place at that time, and then we hand it off. And so understanding that is just like a sheriff doesn't determine the speed limit in the state. You right. know, he just enforces it. The border yeah. patrol doesn't determine what the policy is. We just enforce it. Okay. And so if you're wanting to really have a good posture, you have to have a support system that goes all the way to the top. You have to have yes. you have to implement maybe an executive order. You have to you have to do things that will not incentivize illegal immigration. And push people to start using legal immigration. If you create, and, and there's an argument here, I'll, I'll caveat to it later. But the point is, like, if you continue to make it easy just to do it illegally, what's the point right. of ever doing it legally? Exactly. So that's the situation we have right now. For some reason, and, and, and we have a massive influx because they know that they're like, "Hey, go to America in three days. You're going to be released. There's going to be a notice right. to appear. You have a cell phone." Right, cell phone money, and you're going to be able to. You won't even get to see the judge for five to ten years. So mm-hmm. now that they know that, they're like, "Well, then, what's the fucking point? Let's go." You know, and right. so you can't. Right? Them. Is that is that right. accurate? Is that the process? So like, you hand, off, you hand them off to ICE, and then ICE goes, "Hey, the judge can't see you for five years, so we're just going to release you." Like they don't send them back to their country; they just release them. To the Correct. States. So requesting asylum. Right. As I am, yes, if they're requesting asylum. As I am processing the individual and I've rolled their fingerprints and I've identified who they are, if there is nothing in the database that proves this person is a suspect from any kind of crime, uh, harsh crimes, rape, murders, uh, it could even be you know multiple DUIs. If they have some kind of record, we will send them back. Okay. That's because we're not releasing you back to this country. Okay. But if you're seeking asylum – and, and just understand, they could do all that in another country and, ha- and have no record where we're at. So mm-hmm. there's still people that could potentially come through that still have that background. It's just the ones that we roll and we can identify. We stop right there. They're getting right. deported immediately because we don't, we don't want that. Right. But if you're claiming asylum, if you're a guy that has no previous record, you're, you're seeking asylum, we will honor that. At this moment, currently in the policies, we will honor you seeking asylum until the immigration judge determines if it's true or false. Okay. The immigration judges are so backed up, they won't see you for at least five years. That's insane, man. 
how do you remedy that issue? Well, more judges, <laughs> something. Wait, first of all, there's, you know, so I, I, I said, I didn't say in the book as much because the more I get interviewed, the more I have to find more answers because it's like they're, they're, people are giving me challenging questions and which is yeah. valid. And I love it because it makes me, I already know I'm writing a second book. I called my buddy today. We're writing another book. Oh, and it's going to be awesome. It's gonna, the book is going to be the answers that we believe would help mitigate this, right? Like okay. genuine. That is excellent. I have a list of these experts who are going to give full data points. So that's another story, but Hell because yeah. of those interviews. Right. You heard it here first. Absolutely. So, you know, this isn't a one plus one equals two question. It's actually, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a recipe for a cake. And if you fuck up anything, add too much, you fuck up the whole thing. And when I say that is there's a lot of things that have to happen for this to get rectified. The first thing we, we definitely have to have some kind of repercussion for illegal immigration. You're breaking a law. Mm -hmm. If you break a law, there's a repercussion. We break a law in this country. There's a repercussion. Currently the repercussion is a slap on the wrist. So no one gives a fuck. Let's keep going. So Mm -hmm. we have to have that. We also still have to always allow people to cl- seek asylum because mm-hmm. we are a country with that has dignity, right? Yeah. And we want to maintain Absolutely. that. You know, in legal immigration, there has to be a process where doing it legally is more streamlined. Currently, if you're a Mexican citizen or a, a, a Brit, it'll take 12 years sometimes, 10 to 12 years sometimes to become a citizen. That's a little crazy. Why is actually going through this process? Right, Zach, yeah. how long has it taken so far and how much has it cost you so far? So she's not trying to become a citizen. She's going to keep, she's Japanese. She's going to keep her Japanese citizenship. She's just working through the green card process to work, go in and out. Yeah. Um, We, I initially looked it up myself and I was like, this is way too convoluted. I'm not figuring this out. So we hired a lawyer (laughs) and we're currently like seven, eight grand in. Um, And they gave, it took about six months for her to get her temp green card, which is only like two years. We just applied for the next one, which would be 10 years. And that's that's been months now, too. So um, I think ours was a little more streamlined because we did use a lawyer. Um, I am active duty military. She's not a part of, like, anything crazy or bad, too. Um, yeah, plus, so she, was, she was already here on a student visa. So, like, right. hers was easier. But I could definitely see how it could be very expensive in a long time because – when I was in recruiting, you'd get kids who would come in who'd have like a two-year green card. And they're like, hey, I want to I want to join the Air Force. But like Air Force policy says you have to have a green card that's at least three years before it expires so that no one voids every two-year one. So right. they have to get the next one. But all of them would be telling me, I'm not going to get my next one. They're going to deny it, and I'm going to I'm gonna be here illegally. Or I'm going to yeah, be sent yeah, as, as soon as you're As soon as you're out of um... – status yeah. now you're here illegally so yeah. it's just really crazy it's just real crazy catch 22 that's like doesn't and, if you don't, and they give you a two-year one and you're like hey okay it's good for two years but if you don't start the renewal for your next one like nine months before it expires you're shit yeah. out of luck like yeah. you won't so finish in time then you will be here illegally and now that's breaking a law and yeah. now you try and apply for being a citizen yeah you'll, you'll be an even longer fucking yeah. d- delay so yeah. there's issues in our system. We we have hundreds of combat veterans who served our country who've been deported because they never got their paperwork yeah. finished by the time they got out and then they got a DUI. It's a fucking yeah. shame. What the fuck? So yeah. so you see what I'm saying? This is a seven-layer cake of fucking shit. We need to address all of these different things. And and it's gonna take a long time. It's gonna take it's gonna take uh, you know 
some policymakers to really give a shit about how deep this goes, right? Mm-hmm. The DACA, the DACA conversation alone, right? The kids, mm-hmm. the kids who are born here in America from, so that that conversation alone is challenging, right? At some point, there's going to have to be a cutoff and say, sorry, no more, right? So what do you think about like the the guy Vivek Ramaswamy running for president? Is he getting rid of what we're getting rid of anchor babies? What do you like yeah. your opinion on that? Vivek's comment on that was something that was so profound to me because I never thought of it that way. And I found it to be, it's, it's, he's, he's absolutely right. In, in my opinion, I thought like, holy shit, that's a very intelligent way of seeing this. Like people are mm-hmm. using, it's another loophole to our system because once they have a baby here, then they turn around, they can sponsor their own family and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it becomes this almost, <laughs> almost like a pyramid scheme, you know, of like, <laughs> right. Yeah, of sponsoring everyone else in your family and then pulling them in through the loophole of the immigration process, which if they're doing the process legally, it's part of our process where we, we accept, I think we accept something like a million freaking immigrants illegally a year, right? I'll if not more. Yeah. Is it illegally or legally? Legally. Legally. I think it's a one point something a year. And and so the point is like, yeah, all those little loopholes that are causing like, you know, we're, we're fucking sinking our own ship here. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and yeah. the illegal process is even worse, right? They said since the Biden administration in office, it's something like it's I think it's five to eight million undocumented or 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 you yeah, come here wild. illegally and been released into America, right? So there's a long term effects that are going to come about eventually, and you know the bleeding heart that says open the borders doesn't think about that. And then the mm-hmm. other side of it is like I said, I always want to be a country that that is rooted on freedom, and in that freedom is you know, opportunity. And so we have to find the balance of both of those arguments and, and where they can both be successful, you know, and we can still be very human and have dignity. Yeah. This is, this is a, again, a, a huge dichotomy because I'm like you, like I, I want to help these people coming in. And I think that the United States should be that place. It's given so many people opportunities. Like my, my family wasn't born here. You know, we come, we immigrated a few generations ago, you know, and we're here because of what America is. And my biggest concern is when you look back at, at other civilizations, or, you know, through history, the erosion of an identity, a national identity, and having people come into the country that care and immigrate here and move and want to be a part of it and make it better. Yeah. I feel like and I'm concerned that a lot of people coming in, they see the opportunity, but don't want to contribute to what makes America the way it is as the country we've become. And, you know, the melting pot that we are, I think, and this sounds trite to say, but it's the truth. It makes us what and how great of a country we actually are, you know? And so I'm not opposed at all to people immigrating here. I want people to, because I want the best and brightest coming here. We have this, this society that's amazing, but I am concerned that these aren't, People showing up like in, you know, 1910 to Ellis Island who see America as the the shining city on the hill, right? And they see it as just a place where they can go and get on, you know, welfare and just exist, you know? And I know that's not everybody and that's probably the, the, um, the minority of people. But I feel like the more you have people come in, the more that number grows of, of folks who don't necessarily care to to contribute to America. Yeah. Think about it this way. If, if you didn't care to follow our rules and our laws, then, you know, mm-hmm. and just to come here and right. then reap, reap the benefits of this, you know, what's to say you're, you're going to even care to invest back into this country and keep mm-hmm. it what it is so that mm-hmm. future generations can have that same opportunity to come here. Right. And that's, 
that's a big problem for me. You know, you want people coming here who believe in what America stands for that and, and appreciates and shows gratitude by raising kids to believe in what America stands for. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. but when, when we're not telling you to forget your culture, we're not telling you no. to forget your heritage. We're telling you to invest back into the belief of what this country stands for. That American flag stands for exactly the opportunity that you wanted, that my grandmother came across for, that so on and so forth. And since that American flag stands for that, we currently are in a position where people are demonizing that flag and demonizing our, our, you know, the the pledge Pledge of Allegiance or 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 the you know the national anthem, and they're demonizing it to be like it's racist. Like, no, it's not racist. It's actually everything outside of that. It is the one thing that lets you fight against racism. It's the one thing that allows you to have a voice. It's the one thing that allows you to protest. All those things that are happening currently, like, yeah, that flag represents that. It represents the fight, the fight and the struggle and the belief of the free man. And yep. when you believe in that, you stop believing it and you stop investing in that. We start to lose the identity of this culture, of, of this country. Man, you're preaching. Seriously. <laughs> like it, that same flag is the flag that lets you go up to the statue of George Washington and drape a Palestinian flag over it. And then, you know, write, you know, fuck fuck america on the side of it you know what yep. i mean couldn't do that in china you certainly no. you know, walk up with a taiwan taiwanese flag and hanging over a statue probably of mao that's probably the last time anybody saw you flag in china. Bro, bro, there's yeah. an there was an olympic high level wrestler who spoke against iran okay. and they killed him. and they I feel killed like i've heard this story it was probably about two years ago, and it was a, it was the hardest thing to hear because i'm we're, we're a wrestling family and so okay. to hear that you know that would never happen in America. You talk, you speak no. against. You have the right to. You have the, you're you're completely allowed to. You can't spend five minutes on the internet without seeing a, a fuck Joe Biden or a fuck Donald Trump or whatever. You know what I mean? It that's it. That's part of the American American experience, and I, that's exactly what makes us as great of a country as we are. And it's I mean this this may not be on the topic of like what we're getting at, but that's kind of what's so scary about seeing a lot of people on the, online now with. Um, wanting to lose that rebellious spirit we all have as Americans. And you more and more see people sort of like lionize politicians and they lionize the government and, you know, the government's supposed to take care of us and all this stuff. It's like, that's literally not the truth. The government yeah. is here. You know, it works for you. Yeah. It yeah. works for you. Right. It actually says we, you know, we have the ability to throw off a tyrannical government, you know, in our, our founding documents. Anyway, you know, that's, it, that's my concern is, yeah, all this stuff, you know, is being lost. And part of part of the problem, I think, is this this immigration problem is not being done the right way. I think mm-hmm. also the the test that you have to take to become a citizen of this country, you should have to take that test to graduate high school. Yeah, you know, something wild is if you if you meet some immigrants who are entrepreneurs, they're the first mm-hmm. ones to be like, man, this country has given me the opportunity, right? Yes. And if you if you meet them, they would have more pride in America than Americans who were born here. Yes. Who are, who are, who are now starting to like shit on America. And you're like, hold the fuck up. People I saw speak- that so often. When I, was, when I was in recruiting, that two-year green card guy would be like, I need to give back to this country who gave me a chance. I need to fight for this nation. I need to like do all this stuff. And then I'd be in the high school and there'd be the, you know, the natural born American kid there who's like, man, fuck you. Fuck this. Like, it's like you're complete opposites because you have no, no relevancy to anything you understand. And that concept of a worse environment. 
Yeah, yeah, the they, green, they, the green card they, kid gets it. Right. Like they he understands it. The, right, they sit in that position of of privilege. You yep. know, they've never seen what third, you know, what a third world country looks like. They've never yeah. seen, you know, what it's like to starve or watch their family struggle to fucking just just to buy beans. You know what I mean? It's the, like the literally the poorest American is richer than like. 90 something percent of the world or something like Dude, that think of all the the locals that would come and work on camp man like a couple of those guys like, yeah. i used to see him every day and he was wearing a new england patriots t-shirt <laughs> yeah. i'm like i know you he did not buy Brady. that here yeah i know <laughs> you did not buy that here you know and it's like if you had to wear the same shirt every day to work and you know you're cleaning bathrooms for americans you know what i mean like that's if people complain about their eight hour shift at Starbucks, you know, I sound like an old old man right now, probably complaining. But like you know, it's it's true though. You know, it it is true. And we are very fortunate here as Americans. Incredibly fortunate. Yeah. Incredibly fortunate. And you know, this will only continue to exist as long as we understand the culture of what America is and, and continue mm-hmm. to defend that, whether it is and and at the least teach your kids to respect mm-hmm. what they have. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's us parents who, who have to teach. Like, my kids understand it. They get it. You know what I mean? And I have a daughter who's very liberal, but she's still – she's very liberal in her ideas. And I'm always like, who the fuck raised you? I did. But <laughs> but in the same aspect, she appreciates military. She appreciates military. She appreciates the country. She gets it, right? So it's this very – she's outspoken on her beliefs on, on different subjects, and we don't agree on all of them. And that's okay. She's allowed that's to good. have it. You right. know what I mean? yeah, she's allowed to have yeah. a thought, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. But she yeah, would and- never – She'll never turn her back on like the military is important, you know. Right, America is important. Yeah, it's going it's, back. It's good to have liberalism. They're the ones that are supposed to stick up for the little guy. So yeah, going back to like the uh, the percentages and stuff, it says here that the poorest twenty percent of Americans are richer on average than most other nations. Yeah, so I see. And then uh, I just wanted to go back to the numbers for immigration. You're saying 1.2. It's actually 1.5 million for the most recent year. The highest year was 2016 at 2.7 million. And then oh, wow. this crazy graph. The president? That was uh, uh, 17? 16. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was, that was the year that, that was your Trump got elected. That's the transition what? year. Yeah, the mm-hmm. transition year. It's funny as Obama was one of the most strict presidents we've had on on, on board, board of illegal immigration. Really, if you yeah. if you look at this graph during Bush, it's higher than most of Obama's stuff. So it is. Yeah, Obama, had, Obama had several um, executive orders, and and it was really interesting. It was one that I partake in when I was, and it was called Operation Streamline. And if you came across okay. illegally, you immediately went to jail thirty days. No matter what, I don't care what it's for. You're going to jail for 30 days. The second time it was like six months. The next time it's a fucking year. The next time it's five years. So it was setting a precedence of like, just don't do it. And at the time, man, we were lucky that to, to apprehend maybe 10 people in one night was like, mm-hmm. that was a busy night. <laughs> you know what I mean? So now, it's deterring, you're saying. Yeah, because no one wants to go to jail for 30 fucking days. Dude. I don't know. What you happens wanna... is they, they send the message down south and everyone's like, well, don't go there no more. Yeah. Go somewhere else. And they find the pocket because in Arizona, you can cross fucking 12 times and no one gave a fuck. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's an interesting cycle of trying to find the pocket of the border that currently has a, a has a policy that's like, we'll just we're just going to process them and give an NTA. That's crazy. So probably, scary, bro. I always want to know something scary. 
<laughs> so this is breaking down. This is usafacts.org. All right. Okay. It's, it was, it was breaking down all the immigration and stuff. And uh, they're talking about percentages and where they come from. You would think, right? Like, where do you think majority of Im- immigrants legally come from? Brandon? Legal immigrants? Yeah, legal. Um, hmm. That's a great question, dude. Uh, maybe. Is maybe it India? Pac- I would say Pacific, Pacific uh, countries. It is the Pacific. Well, it, like it's like Phil- Asian countries. Yeah, it, it's mostly Asian countries, but the number one is China. Oh, well, you know, <laughs> I think. Dude, I could tell you some crazy That's stories about me. when I was stationed, dude, when and I was stationed in Montana and for, I'm just, you know, for everybody, if you're not familiar, there's um some big missile fields in Montana and um some one nukes. of the years, <laughs> some nukes, exactly. One of the years that I was there, there was a massive influx of Chinese students on student visas that um, applied to and got accepted to Great Falls University in Montana. And who the fuck's ever heard of Great Falls unless you're like a Lewis and Clark historian. <laughs> And um, for real. And this was because the local paper advertised that Malmstrom Air Force Base was getting a, a, an RPA program. And it doesn't, but it advertised that it was getting an RPA it was program. a test? I don't think it was a test. I think uh, that the, the consequence of seeing this like weird uptick in Chinese students at Great Falls, it was a Catholic university too, which should just also be a red flag. Yeah, that, you know, re- they were religious. Chinese. Yeah, they're not re- very religious at all. And um, the second that they figured that out, they decided they weren't moving that RPA program to Malmstrom. And there was a bunch of disenrollments at the university. And That's a whole bunch, of, whole bunch yeah. of Chinese spies. And then oh, yeah. this technical RPA goes all, on. Never all around <laughs> Malmstrom is a lot of like open prairie. You know, Montana is just really, really open. Yeah. And um, you can get paid if you own land in Montana to get like a wind farm put up on your land. and They'll pay you a lot of money. And um, a lot of those wind farms around Malmstrom are owned by Chinese subsidiary companies. And um, it's it's just kind of crazy. Like, I never talk about, like, China. But, yeah, yeah, dude, I'm not surprised at all. And I also think it's funny, too, because, like, if you've ever spent any amount of time on base, you know also how many Filipino people there are everywhere. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just, so that's why I said that, dude, for real. Because I know there's a lot of very proud Filipino veterans. So, yep. But yeah, Absolutely. so that is scary, Zach. I appreciate that. So, <laughs> but, um, yeah, kind of derailed my train of thought. But you're welcome. Um, yeah, one of the questions I wanted to ask you, you know, as somebody who has put your your line on, on life on the line for our country, like, how does some of the American foreign policy that we've adopted, maybe over the past twenty years, how has that made you feel? Like, how do you kind of see us as a country? Uh, you know, I'm not familiar in that, man. I, I'm I'm more of like a subject matter expert in the Border Patrol. And so, you know, okay. I, I paid attention a little bit to from Obama era to the Trump era as well. It's like I paid attention a little bit to it, but uh, mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not well versed in it to even speak on, to be honest. No worries. Okay. No, I appreciate that. Um, I was curious. The, um, when, you, when you said this this goes back a little bit. I wanted to ask it later, but you got, we were going, so I didn't want to interrupt. But um, you said they like get released right before they go to see like the judge or whatever. They just get released into the United States. What is their status at that time? Can they work? Can they go to school? Can they? What are they legally? Are I don't. They, are they cons- 
I know they can work. Yeah, they can. They can. I'm, I'm almost positive they can do. They they're given permission to do all of that because so they're they here have like for like a social security card. Are they given like an ID? No, they're not given a social security card. Uh, okay. There's a there's a different. I don't know exactly how they do that. Uh, to be honest, that's I'll I'll figure that one out. But they're they're determined that they give a they give a phone number and address, and so they they say that's where they're going, and they go to that location. From there, it's whatever they do. Um, some states. They allow them to work and they allow them to, to go to school. They allow them to do it. So it's just depending on the state that they go to and what the policy is in, in that state. Mm-hmm. But uh, I know for a fact, a lot of those guys are getting, you know, they're getting their medical, they're getting their, their, their education and they're getting their work. And so, uh, do you know so if they're those, under, do you know if they're under like strict, like if they get like pulled over by a cop, uh, a ticket's like a slap on the wrist. It probably doesn't mean anything, but like if they get stopped by a cop for something like more serious, like maybe like reckless endangerment or, like yeah. having a gun, like then the, yeah, they'll be they, deported. Okay, good. Even know. a DUI, even if it's a DUI, they'll get deported. Okay, that deportation is that like a uh, permit deported, or is there like a time period you you know you do three years and then you can try and come back legally? Yeah, so usually after your first offense, it's five years after that. Okay, five years. That's not bad. So, I guess. So just to clarify, they they can come in for asylum, true or not. They get released. Yep. They're supposed to see the judge. The judge is usually about five years, so they're just like sent out into the United States, and they can work. They get health care, depending on the states and all that type of stuff. And they're supposed to be on a pretty tight leash if they break too many laws or too harsh of laws. They're supposed to be deported. But other than that, they can just exist in the United States until that date. Correct. And after okay. that date, they'd be considered out of status, right? They'd be considered out of status after that date. On if they saw the judge, what the judge said, all that type of stuff. Right. Okay. Which most of the time they don't even return back to the judge. Yeah. It'll, tough, man. It's a tough. Yeah. I'm right. <laughs> I'm, I'm in the process of writing something to, to explain the, my concerns of that, but it's, it's, um, I'm very cautious about how I word things. I'm very cautious about the message I put out because it's very easy to, to say something and people jump on board with it, but aggressively, right? This is an emo- yeah. People have a lot of emotional responses to this, right? Um, sure. Maybe, maybe because I don't fear death. Maybe because I've seen a lot of shit in war, and if it comes down to the worst case scenario where I have to just fucking, you know, put my rifle on my shoulder and go to work, you know what I mean? Then so be it. So I don't fear any of it. So I don't get emotionally invested in any of this. Mm-hmm. I sit back and I kind of make a uh, calculated and educated response to everything. Uh, the way I wrote the book was a calculated and educated response uh, to all of it. And I'm currently writing something that I'm doing the same. Uh, I feel like I that's cool. if we emotionally respond to these things, we, we don't have an educated response and we're just hurting the conversation even more. Mm-hmm. And we're not getting to uh, a place where we can have a good discussion and find answers it's too Agreed. much too much emotional investment on the left and the right that is not getting down to like well how do we fucking solve this you know and i've been sitting here with a, a, a think group i have that we we really try and get down to like where are the areas we can attack to try and you know um find answers find answers that actually creates and implements change and and that what's happening currently with with a lot of illegal immigrants who who are released into America? There's a concern there 
that that we are creating a ticking time bomb. You know, there's a concern there. Uh, but I don't emotionally get like I don't emotionally fucking get like oh I'm angry about it. I'm just like mm-hmm. okay, uh, check, got it. What do I need to be prepared for now? Right? And how do I how do I need to see this potential uh, problem? And that's mm-hmm. how I see it. I don't I don't get emotional about it. I get more like okay, cool. I know that's an issue. And so I'm going to kind of observe that. And I'm also going to start taking actions on what I think should be done best for my family, but as well as how I want to educate uh, the United States on that subject as well is what I'm writing next. Have you, uh, has anybody like approached you about like trying to be, obviously your book could be like public, but like you, like what you have to say directly, like being more public, I guess, in like the, the news forum or like, you know, teaming up with people who can actually enact action make a difference that kind of thing yeah you know right now i'm kind of the subject matter expert who's outspoken about it you know um there's a few things i can't mention that that i'm 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 part you know that that's that's will come to light soon enough that i will be able to to um to post but right now we're in the process of we're in the process of of yeah i should be it's some of the big tables in discussions on how we kind of fix this issue. Um, And you'll you'll be able to hear more about it soon. You know, it's a risk taking this position. You know, uh, I'm a, I'm a guy in Hollywood who Hollywood doesn't always, you know, see eye to eye with some of the ideas that I have and that's okay. Mm -hmm. Right. Like we're allowed to have these opinions, but you know, me, me putting my story out as, as a border patrol agent um, can definitely kind of blackball me in some areas. And so, Um, you know, me and the wife had a long discussion about what the plan is. And I said, you know, I feel compelled to tell the story and I believe I can tell the story in a way that, that, um, people can appreciate. And, and I think, I think I did it. You did a good job. (laughs) No, no, I I agree. It was was a really good book. Um, I wanted to know, like the mental health issues in border patrol have got to be pretty bad. Is yes. that something like in the military, it's a massive focus now, you know, I feel like it's another federal agency. It's probably just as much of a focus or the rates as bad as like active duty. Yeah, it is now it is. It's become, you know, so about four years ago, I started working with the border patrol in their messaging when it comes to uh, resiliency. Right. So okay. some of the, some of the bigger uh, stratcom teams, which is the strategic communications teams of the border patrol came to me and like, how do we, how do we talk about this? They see what I do in the mil- when the military side of things or in the veteran side of things, and so we, you know, I I, I explain to them uh, what positive psychology is and, and implementation of uh, what resiliency programs, uh, you know. So I'll say year on year, uh, you know, I don't use the word suicide often because I, I, you know, if you if you understand the psychology behind messaging, right? You know, part of my career was psychological operations. The other part of my life is, you know, I'm, I'm finishing up my master's in psychology. Uh, and awesome. I've been, I've been working in this space for a very long time and understand how to use strategic messaging to be mm-hmm. successful in our veteran community. That's why I own a company called veteran, you know what I'm saying? Uh, yeah. and that's why I also own a company called light the fuse, which is a, is a wellness kind of company. Uh, and so we have gone away from talking about suicide because there's studies, white paper studies that prove that the conversation of suicide continues to create more suicide. There's a there's a white paper study called Suicide Contagion. And mm-hmm. so as the Army implemented suicide prevention programs, they saw an uptick in suicide because now they're giving the idea of it to vulnerable individuals. It's just now- funny. I want to say real fast, 
I remember when they first started doing that training, when I joined the military, they were literally saying, no, you have to talk about it. It doesn't encourage people. You don't give somebody ideas when you say that. And it's literally the, the opposite. That's the truth. Absolutely. It's the opposite. It's proven, proven to be uh, the absolute opposite. And so uh, when organizations come to me and ask, what can they do to implement to the organization? I tell them, get rid of your suicide prevention program and start to implement a resiliency program. So resiliency and wellness is where, where we should be identifying, you know? So if you talk about suicide, we're talking about the worst case scenario. We're talking about the outcome mm-hmm. of people living a redlined life. Mm-hmm. So in Working military, if you, yeah, if you've ever been a part of a military training environment, you have to create mitigation for, 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 for uh, any kind of crisis, right? So mm-hmm. safety mitigation in all training so no one gets hurt, right? Fire and evacuation so, plan. Right. And so, so we don't say, hey, once they get burned, then mm-hmm. we're going to put – you know, we're going to do medical prevention. We're going to stop them from even getting to that fucking point. And so in my world, I teach resiliency. And in that resiliency, I teach different modalities of healing. And so what we do is we identify five areas of people's lives, uh, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, and professional, right? And we identify those five areas are the most significant areas of our life. And so if we can teach people how to live healthier, well-rounded life, we can teach them how to build the resiliency tools so that when they do find themselves in crisis, they know how to handle it. And so, yeah, so that's what, so that's what we've done with the help with the border patrol originally in their messaging. And that's what I do currently outside of everything else I do. I love that because I I've said this so many times when we have these trainings and we have these conversations, because I've been in units where we've had suicide and I've been in like brother or sister units where they had suicides. And I've always said, this is like these programs, at least my experience is the air force, right? These programs almost take the role of maintaining your like morale and resiliency out of your hands and tell you, it almost feels like it tells you, you have no control over what's happening to you or how are you feeling or these emotions, you know, that they're just happening to you and you have no control over it. And then I've always said, this is not actually teaching somebody to overcome those things. It's basically telling them they're a victim and here is a conversation with the first sergeant and you should feel better when you're done. And here's a timeline where I need you to get over it. You know what I mean? And you can't put a timeline on stuff like that. And I love hearing you say that, like teaching actual resiliency, because I do, I feel like it puts some of that back in somebody's hand and help kind of helps them realize I can work towards feeling better. And here are some tools and things that I can do. And I'm not just a victim of this depression I'm feeling or the situation that happened or whatever, you know, Right. So think, very fresh. If we if we circle back to the conversation of our kids in sports, like, did you tell your kids you're going to be a loser your whole life? So just mm-hmm. get used to it, you know. But you can no. tell me, no, no, you don't <laughs> tell me. You say, hey, so you lost today, and we can build on this, and we can learn from this, and how we can get better, and we can teach you how to manage these losses, and we can give you the tools to actually learn how to win. Right. right. And it's the same that concept is is. Let me give you tools. When you start to feel yourself in crisis, let's stop and let's take a breather. Let's do a fucking 30 minutes of grounding and breathing. Let's fucking re, 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 reorganize this brain for a second. And then when you get that done, let's start implementing other things. How did you get to this point? All right. What are the mm-hmm. things that are happening in your life right now? What's the stressors that we can mitigate? And if you teach people and you give them a fucking tool bag of fucking tricks that they can use, well, now 
They don't need to call you. They're going to be like, man, you should have seen last night I was in a crisis, but I started doing my breathing techniques and I started meditating. And then I I didn't drink, which thank God, because normally when I drink, I fucking go even further down. the Right. And so you start like, so now they'll call you and be like, bro, this worked for me. This is what I'm doing. I'm actually implemented a workout session. I actually went to a meditation. I went to a counselor, did EMDR. So it becomes the cool to actually start debriefing stress, right. And start to break down all these, these traumas that for so long we hold in and then we say, Hey, let's go drink. Right. And then, and then you don't realize that you've probably given that guy the tool. So there's another white paper study that says, if you have post-traumatic stress, TBI and drinking, you create suicide ideation. Wow. So you're like, Oh, okay, cool. So every fucking dude who's ever got a TBI and has post-traumatic stress and starts to drinking because this is what we do. We've just right. fucking implemented cocktail. A chemical, yeah, a cocktail, a suicide cocktail. They t- teaches them their brain. They can't even stop it. Their brain creates suicide ideation because of these compounds all combined. It's this crazy fucking phenomenon that your brain does. And so so for me, my own special operations community, I have guys who've done the same combat missions as me, same, same things. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I have a couple of my buddies who committed suicide and you're like, well, wait, were they drinking? Yeah. Like, yeah, I'm sober. So I've been sober four years. Today was four years, five months and 12 days. Congratulations. That's amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. And, and the point of it was, how do I implement another tool that can save me in the moment of crisis? Well, drinking is the one where if you look at the statistics of any one of your buddies who've committed suicide, and I just, I don't want to say this lightly. I'm saying, see if they were drinking. And I'm going to, I'm going to tell uh, you, they were fucking drinking. I'm going to tell you, this is, this is a true story. The first person I ever lost to suicide in the military was a friend of mine from tech school. And um, it was his 21st birthday. And the unit he was in, he was partying with a bunch of guys and they kind of, from what I was told, I wasn't there. They were hazing him pretty bad because he's a new airman. And um, 21st birthday, got him shit face, started hazing him. He went right back to his dorm room and killed himself. And I mean, to me, I feel like, and have always felt like that the alcohol was what like lubricated that line between, okay, I feel like shit because these people made me feel like shit too. I'm going to take care of the problem and I'm the problem. And I've seen so many, I've been, I mean, I don't know if you know, like Zach and I are both cops in the Air Force. And so we've dealt with a lot of suicide, like in people we know, and then responding to, or people that are ideating or whatever. And I would tell you, I would say at least eight out of 10 of these responses I've been to, all of them involve alcohol. All of them involve some sort of trauma that happened very, very soon, or like recent to like the situation, this traumatic um intense situation we're dealing with now as a law enforcement p- professional in you in your home or whatever. And that is so true. And it's, it's wild to me, you know, cause this is against like the classics is right down the street on every base. And it's like actively encouraged to go get intoxicated. And believe me, I like drinking and I think you know, I can do it responsibly, you know, and I don't see a problem with you wanting to be responsible and, and, and drink, but it is, it's just like, here's all these issues that you're dealing with. Here's no tools to help you. Go to the classics. You every know, military function has like every hey, military function booster club put two hundred dollars right. on the bar and we'll run there and get your free drink. Like, and like alcohol is a depressant. Like it yeah. every pilot squadron like has a bar. Every yeah. pilot squadron has a bar. Yeah. So, so like think about bars. We've yeah we've created a drinking culture, which fine, okay, that's cool. But how many of these people have all the other issues in their life that they're not mm-hmm. managing? relationships, yeah. finances, right? right? Traumas they haven't healed. All these mm-hmm. things that we don't know, are we handing them the one thing that's going to set them over the edge? 
Mm-hmm. And so that's a, that's a risky take every time you invite alcohol to, to, to a party or, or to, to a function. Like we have to really understand our men and we have to give them tools so that drinking isn't the, oh, the, the, the fuck it button for them. Right. Right. That's what I call it. kind of the fuck it. Button. Oh, I, I, fuck it. Yeah. I yeah. had, I had one, I had one real close friend who was like really down in the dumps, not having a fun time, um, drinking all the time had a gun in you know in his possession stuff and I noticed the signs and I was like, look dude, like I'm taking your gun. You're not getting easy out. You're not doing that to me. You're not doing it to yourself. You're not doing it to your family and friends. So I took his gun and stuff and then I, I just kept reminding him, I was like, stop, like you gotta stop going always to alcohol, dude. It's not the answer. You gotta do something else. And eventually he stopped. He's happily married now, doing great. Um still doesn't have any guns. But I uh actually bought his only gun from him after the whole thing. He thanked me for doing his stuff, but it, it alcohol, it can, it just starts getting you down that spiral and then the natural depressant. Yeah. And then it yes. just, it just reverberates. And then you think, Oh, I feel like crap. So I'm going to drink to feel more like crap. Like, okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Well, <laughs> on, on top of that, while we're on the subject, you know, like I'm very cognizant about how I'm set up my, my writing and what I say. And I'm very cognizant of how I use my social media platform. You know? right. And in saying that, there's a lot of veterans who mean well. They mean well by posting these, these you know, suicide conversations or these, you know, the, I, I call them Debbie Downer posts. You know what I mean? They highlight suicide to hopefully have an emotional response to people. So then people now know veterans struggle with suicide, right? So if they, if they're, they're still on the mindset that suicide um, – suicide awareness is a thing and suicide awareness is fucking done everyone knows right but because the easy thing to generate likes and shares is to 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 promote and post the emotional response to suicide so all these social media influencers like they don't understand messaging the way i do they don't understand communication they don't understand like the power of influence but what they do understand is that people are emotionally responsible. People have an emotional response to veteran suicide, right? The topic mm-hmm. of veteran suicide, people are like, oh, I care. So I'll share, mm-hmm. right? Or they'll right, comment. Right. You know, and they'll be 22 yep. a day and they'll do all those things. But what they don't get is they're continuing to perpetuate suicide by promoting mm-hmm. suicide, by promoting the Debbie Downer post. So they don't, they're, they're, they're wrong in their messaging and they don't realize that. They don't understand what's right. like psychology. They don't understand subconsciously. They're giving the message to people who are vulnerable, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. They think they're doing good by saying suicide awareness. Like, no, motherfucker, I'm a, I'm a promise you, suicide awareness is, is already done. Suicide prevention is important, but how do you do suicide prevention? It's called resiliency. You see what I'm saying? And so yeah. they're stuck in the, in the idea of that they're making impacts by talking about suicide, and they're not. They're actually doing the same thing of what a suicide prevention program does. You see mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Yes. And so- you need like a thousand of you. Right, right. And so, what we, yeah. So, what we need to do is teach guys tools. We need to be on the side of resiliency and wellness, and to teach growth, and not la- allow people to victimize their situation. I have a guy the other day. He goes, "Bro, I joined your fucking light diffuse group, and uh, fuck that group, bro. I posted in there that I was struggling, and fucking no one came to rescue me." I said, "Bro, were you drinking? Yeah. Well, then that's your first fucking problem. Don't come to my group." Thinking it's all the other veteran groups that are mm-hmm. that all celebrate victimization. My group mm-hmm. celebrates growth. My group is that. a group of, of accountability. Mm-hmm. You're drinking, your fault. You want to get sober? We have a group for that. Get sober, right. motherfucker. But if you're coming here to fucking try and pull me down with you while you're down your downward spiral, mm-hmm. fucking sadness, fucking like feel sorry for me, we don't do that here. 
mm-hmm. tell you, if you need help, I'll send you fucking straight to a fucking uh, sober clinic. That's what I'll do. Mm-hmm. I don't fucking bullshit nobody. Hey, mm-hmm. I'm getting divorced. Okay, cool. That's done. What are you doing next? They're like, yeah. huh? I'm like, that's already <laughs> done. Right? You're getting divorced. It's done. Yeah, so let's that's the typical response. Exactly. Yeah. So let's prepare <laughs> our fucking finances. Let's get to the fucking gym. Let's get better. Let's figure out the money. Let's be good for your fucking kids because they're going to still need you. And let's get ready for the next fucking woman and be the best version of you so you don't fuck that one up too. You see Hell what I'm yeah. saying? Like, like not, tough love that most of us res- resonate with, I feel like. Yeah. You know? it's, 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 it's not just tough love. It's tough love with, with education. It's like, mm-hmm. hey, let's be honest. I don't need to feel sorry for you. It all sucks. We're going to go through it. But there's answers once you get past the fucking victimization of it. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like – we sit too long in this victimization saying, please feel sorry for me, world. I'm going through it. Yeah. And you're like, stop. If you want answers, go to counseling straight up. I'll give you a fucking 20 places you can go. You want mm-hmm. to fucking heal trauma? You want to do fucking plant medicine? You tell me what you want. I'll send you right to the motherfucker. Because there's mm-hmm. answers. There's a million different nonprofits that can fucking find an answer for you. But are you willing to take it? So when you come to me, I say, yeah, you can lead a horse to water, but motherfucker, I'll make you drink it. Hell yeah. you know because that's what we need. We need to stop victimizing. We need to stop these groups that are called dysfunctional veterans. Like, no, you're not, bitch. You're a fucking whiny bitch. Right? I've seen that group. Yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah. And so it's like, you think that promotes positivity? No, it promotes victimization. It's like a cycle. Prom- I feel like yeah, it creates it, just yeah, a group. Exactly. And it promotes alienating yourself from a group. It's like, mm. that's not transitioning healthy. That's saying you're better than other, but that, that, no one understands me. No one understands me because veterans have the monopoly on trauma. No, we don't. Dude. No, we yeah. don't. You right. see what I'm saying? And so if you want to talk about psychology and you want to talk about positive psychology, you want to talk about growth and you want to talk about keeping people resilient, it's like give them the tools to fucking be successful. Mm-hmm. Stop letting them fucking willow in their fucking sadness because there's answers for all of this. Yeah, And if you don't want the answers, well, then you don't want to get better and you want people to feel sorry for you. And you know yeah. what? Don't come to me for that type of shit because I don't feel mm-hmm. sorry. For you. We're all right. going through the fucking world, right? We're all in this spinning fucking ball trying to find a way to be happy. Okay. And so yeah. there's answers and you got to start taking those answers or else get out of my way, dude. Don't pull me down with your shit. Right. Mm-hmm. Dude, I think there's a lot of people that, that need to realize that they do just want sympathy and get past that and before they can get help. You know what I mean? Because I yeah. think that they think that that sympathy is help, you know, but it doesn't yeah. actually build you up. It's just like kind of almost like confirmation bias. Like, yep, I'm depressed. Thank you for validating that feeling. Confirmation well, that's, that's, Exactly. <laughs> that's something I learned uh, when I went, because I'm the shirt now for my unit and I went through like shirt training. And one of the big things they said is whenever you're dealing with an issue, you should like just straight up ask them at the beginning, do you want me to just listen or do you want me to solve your problem? And yeah. that will dictate how the rest of it goes. You just want to vent to me and just an hour go blah, and then I'll just, uh-huh, yeah, yep, got it, uh-huh. And then, all right, was that a good venting session? All right, see you later. Yeah, but well, that's what we... Yeah, yeah, if you tell me yeah. I want to solve your problem, then, okay, I'm writing down notes now. And now everything you say to me, it's stupid. I'm calling you out on it. <laughs> that's, so that's me and my wife is, right? So yeah. I want to solve your problem, but you just want to vent. I, I know that now. So my yeah, wife yeah. says, blah, blah, blah. And she hits me with all of it. I'm like, cool, cool, cool. I'm like, yeah, I hear you, mama. I hear you. And then I just, that's it. I'm not going to solve yeah. your problem because you don't want to solve your problem. Yeah. You just want to get it off the chest. Well, you, my you wife has said that to me so many yeah. times. I don't need a solution. Just, just listen. And right. that's us, you know, it's like fi- fixers, you know what I mean? Yeah, I want to fix it, but I'm like, you know what? There's no fixing this. She just wants to get off her chest because she's it's been too busy. 
she's been dealing with all the kids this whole time. She wants to talk to an adult and let it out. Right. 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 Exactly. Gotcha, mama. Yeah. And I got to tell myself, don't try and fix this shit. Just let it go. Mm -hmm. Let it go. You know what I mean? It's, it's an actual process to take yourself through in your brain to like, nope, just listen. Yep. You know? Yep. So, yeah. And that's there's so moments where, then there's moments where I know I need to fix it. Where she's like, I just can't find where this is. Here you go. I right. find it. Googled it. <laughs> right. right. You, you have this thing. I'm it's the, called a I'm smartphone. The, yeah. I'm the holder of all secrets and knowledge, babe. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I am now with AI too, bro. I got everything. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Let me ask ChatGPT real fast. Yeah. I did that ChatGPT a question for my daughter today for math. I was like, give me a second. Dude. Yeah. Wow. It's changing the game. That's for sure. Yeah. I wanted to ask you a question that kind of go back to border the border again. Yeah. Is, is a valid concern I see a lot of people voicing is the amount of military age males that we see coming across the border. Like I can buy the story of asylum when you're a mother with your kids, you know, making your way across. But when you're 19, 20 years old, it's a little harder to believe. And it's also concerning. It's like we were just talking about we're the fixers, right? Why are yeah. you not doing what you're supposed to be doing to try and fix these problems that are ongoing in your country? And why are the majority of these people I see seem to be like the 18 to 25 crowd? Yeah, well, you know, there's there's two sides of that 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 answer. Um, mm -hmm. Like, so the tactical side, like us in this room, right, who mm -hmm. are military guys who defend our country, mm -hmm. we see that as a threat, mm -hmm. yeah. right? The other side of us sees it like, well, that's the average age of a working male anywhere. Okay, you know, that's and valid. So yeah. Right. And so like if they're going to come here to work in the fields, too, they're going to be that age. Right. If they're going to be here to, to just to work and earn money for their country and send it back to their wife and kids, they're going to be that age. And so um, I, I, I don't say that lightly. Right. Yeah. yeah. Those are, that's also the age that fights wars. Yes. <laughs> right. But but if you want to be the devil's advocate for that, that's also the man who works for his family. So um sure. Is, it's interesting, right? Like I said, like I'll say it like that. I'm, I don't have an emotional response to that. I say, in realistic, realistically, if I'm not just an angry person, I'm going to say that's just the age of the man who can make the journey, who can fucking go to work, and who's going to send money back to his family. So I mean, that's true. That actually, yeah. that's probably the smartest answer I've heard to that question because Joe Rogan says don't read the comments, but I read the comments pretty often. And you, know, you see a lot of dumbass shit in the comments, you know, and it's like I see these things. It's like it's a valid concern to see like, yes, like we were talking about. These are all military age males. This is the guys that you see, you know, but I've never once seen somebody be like, OK, true. But that's also the dude that's trying to provide for a family, the, the 24 year old that's coming across and there's better opportunities here or whatever, you know. Yeah. So and I'll, I'll be totally, totally frank. I've never even thought of it that way. So I appreciate the uh, fresh perspective. You talk. Yeah. You talked about you know you you're really good at keeping like your emotions out of it stuff like that. Obviously, working in border patrol, you probably came across some very sketch individuals oh, who yeah. probably are part of like maybe some bigger organized crime and stuff like that. Is cartel? Have you, have you ever had a time where like someone you were directly talking to or whatever like threatened you, your family, like come pretty strong in that sense, or you felt that like the person you maybe had to let go was in like, like you knew oh, you, you shouldn't have let them go. Is that yeah, ever that, happened? There's no one I've, if I put my hands on that, I didn't, I never let them go. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Um, 
When Vince is on the border, no, no one gets to him. <laughs> right. Vince the fence. Yeah. If I got you, you're going in. Um, you know, it's the same overseas. Uh, I don't think I've ever had anger in my heart. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever had anger. I, I if I, it's like I'm a I'm a I'm a trained fighter. I know how to fucking knock a motherfucker out and not be mad at him. You know. Mm-hmm. And so, in the same as like, if if I've ever had to engage, there wasn't an anger to it. It was mm-hmm. doing my job. And the same in the border patrol. Um, you know, yeah, we've taken down cartel dudes, and there was no anger behind that. Even yeah. though, if we sat there at night thinking about how nasty this dude had probably murdered people. I still don't have anger in my heart because at the moment I did my job. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can definitely look back and be like, fuck, I'm glad I got that piece of shit person kind of thing. You see what I'm saying? Um, in the moment of someone being aggressive with me, aggressive with me out in the fields, I handle it accordingly, dude. Snatch them up, slam them down, fucking cuff them up. Boom. The, 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 the deescalation, uh, you know, the threat's done in the yeah. moment it's a fight. And so I think that uh, I'm very comfortable in those worlds. And so there was never a time where I feel like I've lost my anger. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just been more like a after effect. You're like, holy shit, that was fucking crazy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, your your conversation about resiliency kind of made me think about um, the military in general and then like the retention issues that the military has. And I kind of was thinking like, I almost wonder if if a tertiary effect of making – the current state of like military members more resilient would would help reduce the uh, uh, retention issues that we have. Like if you can be more resilient, and then you would be willing more to stay in. Does that make sense? Yeah, I don't. I don't think so, man. I think. Um, you don't think so? Okay. I, no, and I'll say. I, I think the power of social media has kind of hurt the the retention. Right. The fact that okay. you've seen guys like me, Matt Best, you know, and, and we do this YouTube thing and find success outside and you see other veterans find success. You see all these veterans doing successful shit and making good mm-hmm. money. And you're like, this is cool. That's good money. And that's a little bit of freedom. You know what I mean? And so it's really hard, I think, to maintain okay. people when you, when you can chase the dream, the American dream, dude. Right. The American yeah. dream of entrepreneur, entrepreneurship, you know, guys who these Navy SEALs and these these dudes have been able to make it happen. It's hard to keep these free thinkers outside the box thinkers into a world that keeps them in this box. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's why you have a lot of special operations dudes get out and go do some do these multi-million dollar companies and all this stuff because like a lot of those a lot of these dudes are outside the box thinkers already and how we do our job to be able to do your thing um but i think there's i I think a big part of us not getting recruiting numbers is the fact of like we talked about like the dying culture of what america is right like where people Mm -hmm. don't don't believe in it but also as veterans as veterans man my my daughters are afraid to join the military because they think they're going to be like me they're like i don't want ptsd dad <laughs> you know, right. like hold on right. everybody's got ptsd it's, a, right. it's like right. the thought right but no, no dropping your I daughters think, into fallujah That's not yeah. <laughs> but i i think we need to be a lot better at at being honest with ourselves and saying look who fights our wars it's the poor in the middle class and why yes shit we needed it Right. Like, look, I had a full ride. And if it wasn't for that full ride, I'd never have college. You know what I'm saying? My parents couldn't afford four kids going to college. My daughter, my my oldest sister, she went to college. The rest of us figured it out, you know, and eventually paid it on her own. And so so we need to be more honest with ourselves and tell those like those those poor middle classes. Like, look, you want to jump one level in your economic position? Join the fucking military. You don't have to be an infantryman. 
No. You can go do something fucking really good. But yeah. no one talks about that. I tell no. people all the time, like, go fucking be a goddamn Intel analyst. You get yeah, out go and get program a satellites. Go program satellites. Yeah. You can do that yeah. when you get out. Yeah, go. Space propulsion, jet engine so mechanic. Things. There's so many things. Yeah. We're not positive components of our own pushing the great career fields and the great opportunities that this can do for people. Mm-hmm. The, these illegal immigrants that are coming across, join the fucking military. Serve this yeah. country. Serve this country. Get your citizenship. And, and, and we should be pushing that more. That should be a big thing. Like, look, you want to come here? Fine. Serve your country three years, dude. And here, I think find there's a, a job. lot of misplaced fear about that. I think there's a lot yeah. of misplaced fear about that. And I think it would be a great way, not just for people coming over to immigrate to this country, but a lot of our younger people that are born here, American citizens in general, to put them, you know, at least some sort of civil service. You know what I mean? Not necessarily the military. But right, I mean that I agree with that so hard. Like it's there's so much misplaced fear about it that I don't get. So yeah, there's people that are struggling out there, man. There's people that don't have dental plans. There's people that are poor. And it's mm-hmm. like, look, you don't have to be. You can mm-hmm. seriously join the military and use the fuck out of the benefits while you're there. Get mm-hmm. your teeth done. Get that money. Get your education yeah. paid for. Like mm-hmm. you want to jump an economic fucking position real quick? You want to change generational fucking value of your own fucking bloodline? Join the military. Dude. That'll put you poor to middle class real fucking quick. Right. And you know what's funny too is that even that's not even just an American thing. As far back as there have been professional militaries, that is probably one of the most tried and true ways to jump from being one class to another is going to that soldier middle class, right? And then coming out and then you could become, you know, this is wrong, become a patrician or whatever, you know, and just but it's so true. It's so true. And there's so much behind it historically to say that this is literally a tried and true method. Give it a shot. Yeah. You know, if you're in Texas and you serve the military, mm-hmm. your kids get the Hazelwood Act. Yeah. That's four years of fucking college. California you know does I mean? something similar as well, actually. Very mm-hmm. se- several states do something similar, but it's crazy. It's like people don't get that. Like, look, you can be the poorest dude in Hobart, Texas, who knows where. Go to mm-hmm. college. I mean, go to the military for four years, and now your kids will have college. You've now just changed the generational gap for mm-hmm. your own family. You did it for your yeah. own kids. I, I don't know. That's how I think. I knew yeah. like serving and go to college. I got my bachelor's degree. I'm working on my master's degree. Yeah. All the paper by the government. I'm changing like, you know, my kids, they get a stipend when they go to college right now. It's, so it's like, I don't think we're marketing that very well and we're explaining that well. I don't think mm-hmm. we're, we're, I don't I think agree. us as, yeah, I don't think us as veterans are, are promoting this for our kids. I think guys are telling their kids, don't do it. I'm telling my kids, go for it. I'll guide you. I'll show you exactly right. how to do it so you can get the most out of it and get a skill set right. that you want. So. I actually think there's a, a large population of veterans that are kind of discouraging military service right now. Yeah, I know. I, I know for a fact they are. And I, I won't mm-hmm. be that. I'm not on that bus. You know, yeah. the, the VA is frustrating. Yep. But mm-hmm. you know what? I've done my best to navigate that and I endure that. And, I, and much as I'm a pain in the ass to them as much as they are to me. And I've gotten everything yeah. I needed. Out of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, that's... It's about effort, I guess, when, when it comes to that. But, yeah, uh, you know, honestly, man, having this conversation with you, it, uh, you're a brilliant person. Absolutely. And I, I think what you're doing. No, I mean it. I'm not trying to blow smoke up your ass. You know, you're a lot more than just, you know, the person that somebody may look at the cover of the book and see this big tough guy. And, you know, oh, it's Border Patrol, former soldier. Like, nah, man, there's there's definitely levels to you that I I've learned and appreciate from having this conversation. And um, I always really like to ask people this question, like before we, we like close out. So I'll let Zach 
jump in if he's got anything else he wants to talk to you about before I hit you with the the cue. But uh, <laughs> Zach, no, I'm good. I I just want to say I, I the answers you gave to some of the questions we had on the border yeah. kind of blew me away because when I think of like a border patrol agent, I'm thinking that they are. Like working in law enforcement, most cops tend to have a very specific kind of like ideology when it comes to a lot of situations. And I was thinking you were going to be a certain way and I was happy you weren't. So <laughs> I just want to say thank you for um, for being not what I thought you were going to be. That's great. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you this way. The Border Patrol career field is not like any other law enforcement. Yeah, we have to be humanitarians. We have to be enforcers. We also have to be crisis counselors in the moment of someone loses their family. We have to be medical technicians in the point that someone gets injured. So we have such a a, a vast like tool bag of 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 hats we need to wear, and we don't approach illegal immigration with the aggression that most law enforcement officers have to use their job and be, yeah. you know, kind of on a, on a very aggressive posture. We're, we're more of a posture of what's the situation and what hat do I need to wear at this moment? And so I don't punch my gun out and say, Hey, you're here illegally. I say, Parte. you know what I mean? I say, stop. <laughs> Are you here illegally? Yeah. What do you need? Nothing. Get in the truck. Right. And so <laughs> it's a passive approach to law enforcement that I think the outside world doesn't know and they don't expect. And most border patrol agents are Hispanic. And so there's an empathy, there's empathy Thanks, that guys. comes along with understanding mm -hmm. this world. And so, yeah, there's going to be, there's going to be aggressive dudes in our organization, just like there's, there's dumbasses in every organization. Yeah. But the, the heart of the border patrol is the most patriotic organization in America, hands down, because we are the first line of defense of protecting this great nation from any kind of terrorist organization. And we are the number one organization that stops drugs more than the ATF. We handle most of our cases, right? And we are the biggest humanitarian mission that happens in our nation. Yep. So we fulfill both of those more than anyone else, and we get no credit for it, which we don't need the credit. My point is people don't know that. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I was just going to say that I feel like – there's a lot about the Border Patrol people just don't know and then underappreciate the hell out of. And uh, that was kind of one of my goals tonight talking to you is just to kind of hear this, you know, the empathy, the human side, humanizing you guys that wear that Border Patrol badge and do this job, you know, and um, say, I appreciate you. And I know that that's a hell of a hard job. I have uh, another friend who he's probably Air Force cop as well, who's in the Border Patrol as well in Texas. And um, yeah, it's, it's hard work. You know, and he's got a family and kids and all that. And I know that, you know, military gets a lot of appreciation from people and, but the border patrol, you know, doesn't. And maybe some of that, some of that, thank you for your service should, should head that way a little bit, maybe, you know, so. I will but, say um, at Chipotle, mm -hmm. border patrol agents and cops get 50% off. Military <laughs> members do not. If you didn't know. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Chipotle <laughs> appreciates our border patrol, apparently. You show them your badge, 50% off. You show them your tag. They don't care. He's like, I'm going to go to Chipotle tomorrow for lunch. <laughs> <laughs> the one question I like asking a lot of people is um, if you could go back in time and talk to that, you know, young knucklehead Vince now as the person you are today, what would you tell him? Oh, man, it's tough to change anything. You know, um, I'd say get ready for a long ride, man. I've been very blessed and having this crazy, fulfilling, and 
many different curves till I got to this point. You know what I mean? And um, I think if I change anything, it, it'll ruin the outcome of where I'm at now. Mm-hmm. And so it would just say, hold on for a long journey, man. And, uh, you know, and probably message that girl sooner. <laughs> message my right. wife a little sooner. There you go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Get that she's positivity been the, in your life. Yeah, she's been the rock in my life. That's been the push. And I'll be straight up. When I met her, it felt like everything in my life fell into place. But not only just life did, mm-hmm. uh, how I believed in myself. And so my wife, uh, she genuinely has made me believe in myself again when I didn't. And uh, since her, I'm telling you, None of this would have been possible. I never would have believed I could write a book. Never thought I could be on TV. Never thought I could be a writer of a television show. Never, never thought any of it was possible. And um, just the power of one woman who who allowed me to believe in myself again and changed everything. I love that. That's testing. awesome. That's awesome. It is. Dude, well, uh, Borderline comes out November fourteenth. Um, you guys listening, you can head on over to uh, Vince's page or Google it, or you can head over to us um, and pre-order it. Highly recommend it amazing book i was really appreciative that we were able to get that advanced reader copy and read it and please uh you know consider us for your next book when it comes out we'd love to to take a look at it and talk to you about it because this conversation has honestly been an awesome conversation for me eye-opening fresh perspective i really love the resiliency stuff that you were talking about as well i think that's a totally different approach the right approach i feel like and um so yeah we'll we'll post post it again um, it's a permanent spot on our Instagram page to highlight. You can find um, Vince's book, Borderline. And um, yeah, Vince, is, is there anything else you want to you want to leave us with before we head out here for tonight? No, man, I, I just appreciate it. You know, we're, we're doing our best to make this a New York Times bestselling book because I think people need to read it. And this this book, Great. if anything, it's just the it's just the foundation of the immigration conversation. So if you really want to understand it, you need to understand what the career field of the border patrol does first before you can try to open or peel back the layers of this, this onion. So um, thank you for your guys' time, man. And thank you for the conversation. Absolutely. Thank you. All right, guys, uh, we're going to head out for tonight, but thank you again for listening to another episode of I Came With Fire podcast. And uh, we're out of here. What's going on, Fire fans? I Came With Fire podcast is sponsored by Red Clover Coffee and Sheep's Clothing, LLC. Red Clover Coffee is a veteran-owned company with small batch roasted coffees, and they just happen to donate to some pretty awesome charities. Whether you're into specialty flavored coffees, single-source coffees, or having a really cool coffee mug and some badass slaps, Red Clover has you covered. You can order ground, whole bean, or even coffee pods and get it all at 10% off your entire purchase using coupon code CAMEWITHFIRE. Again, that's 10% off your entire purchase using our coupon code CAMEWITHFIRE. I personally love their Blueberry Invasion and African Roast. That Blueberry Invasion hits the spot. Head over and get yourself some awesome coffee and support us by supporting our sponsor. I Came With Fire podcast is also sponsored by Sheep's Clothing, LLC. Sheep's Clothing, LLC is a unifying banner for all violent arts, disciplines, professions, and survivors of violent circumstances. Redefine violence. Both Zach and I being survivors of violent circumstances and LEOs in the military, we are especially excited to be able to offer you 10% off your entire purchase with coupon code FIRE10 at checkout. Whether you're looking for an awesome t-shirt, hats, slaps, flags, or MMA gear, they've got you covered. Me personally, I love my snapback with the leather patch surrounded by God's flannel. If you know, you know. That's coupon code FIRE10. F-I-R-E-1-0 at checkout for 10% off your entire purchase. Thank you all so much for supporting this podcast. And if you should feel compelled, treat yourself by supporting our sponsors as well. 
They truly make a difference for us. Now let's make a difference for them. See you on the next show.